You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I feel like who art ed? Try to spice it. Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Yeah. Either way, it, it's a big, it works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, weekly art history for all ages. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me once again, I have my good friend and colleague, Emily Fiedler. Thank you very much for joining me. Yep. Always love being here. I... I... I feel like um, I'm going to be coming to you so frequently because I keep finding these odder and odder stories. Like last year at this time, we were doing the story of like the heist from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And mm-hmm. this time we have quite possibly the greatest art fraud I have ever read about. I like, I'm so I excited. It's a weird one. So it's a weird now. one. Like, I, I feel like it's even better than like the Han Van Meegren case, um, mm-hmm. which I don't know if you're familiar. Van Meegren was the guy who, um, when he confessed that he was a fraud, no one believed him. And so like at the trial, he had to prove that he was, in fact, an art forger because the alternative to that was he was dealing art to the Nazis and a traitor. So like he's on trial for his life and had to, um, had to prove that he was in fact a liar and a fraud. Oh my gosh. The art world can get really crazy sometimes. It is bananas. And I love every bit of it. And if you want to learn more (laughs) about that, I did a podcast, I don't know, last year about Han Van Meegren. I'll link it in the show notes, but today we are talking about, Let's see if I can get this right. Wolfgang Beltraki. Now, Wolfgang Wolfgang Beltraki, as I said, is probably like the greatest art forger in the history of the world. His ability to take on other identities is so thorough, Beltraki isn't even his given name. Uh, he met Helene Beltraki in 1992. They got married and he just took her name because I guess he takes everything else. Why not? Um He was actually born Wolfgang Fischer in Hochster, Germany, um, February 4th, 1951. So growing up in Germany, like post-war Germany, he says that his parents were both just traumatized by World War II. And I I don't know how you couldn't have been, you know? Right. But he said they didn't really talk about it. Like his mother had been forced to flee her home in the countryside. His father spent years in a POW camp. And he says there was just like this heaviness the entire family felt, but just didn't discuss. And from what I've read, and I've read some articles where they they like try to psychoanalyze Beltraki, they said that like 
he seemed to have almost like a secondhand survivor's guilt. And um, like the theory is that his fraud was a way of just like getting lost in someone else's identity to escape that sort of heaviness. Right. I was even thinking about like, I've learned a lot about trauma informed education. And when students sometimes experience significant trauma, they escape through the arts specifically. And that's mm-hmm. why art therapy is such a great thing at our way of healing. So maybe that was his route and avenue. Well, it absolutely is. And I think it's not just in the arts, although obviously you and I have a bias towards the arts. You know, I actually studied a little bit of art therapy, um, you know, back way, 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 way back in the day. Um, But like, I think just getting lost in a task can Mm -hmm. be a way of coping with a lot of different stuff. Um, I know even in an odd way, teaching is somehow almost relaxing to me because like once I once I walk through the door and like kids are in front of me it has to be all about them and I can just like compartmentalize and shut off that part of my brain of like everything that's going on at home and the things that I'm worried about with that stuff and it's just like for the next six hours it's just about these kids and it's like it's nice to be able to just like hang that at the door for a little while and it's in some ways, an escape. And I I think art in a lot of ways was that sort of escape for him. He just took it way farther than anyone I've ever heard of. So yeah, like as a kid, his father actually worked restoring paintings in churches and Wolfgang would sometimes assist him. And that's from what I understand, kind of how he learned the craft. Essentially, you know, restoring works is copying someone else's style and learning how they're working and and trying to imitate that. He says when he was about 12 years old, his father, who obviously loved art, was doing like a master study, his own version of a Picasso. Well, Wolfgang decided to give it a try. And again, this feels like it's like lifted from someone else's story because it feels like that old story of Leonardo da Vinci. But Uh, Wolfgang dashed off this painting that was just so exquisitely rendered, his father puts down his brush. Um, Again, I don't know if that's even true, but it's such a great story. I can't not include it. So then one of the things that I think makes Beltraki really interesting is that he didn't paint copies of other people's artworks. He studied and got into the mindset of that artist. Um, He would read primary sources, like letters, journals from the artist. He says that he would get so deep into it, like he knew what that artist was eating and would like could like smell the food of their meal when they were when they were producing it. Like he went to crazy lengths. He would travel to different places um, to see the sites that inspired that artist. And he would go at the same time of day, at the same time of year that that artist was known to have gone there. Um, He would go to the museums looking over their catalog. He would find pieces. And, And this is, I think, the brilliance of it. He would find pieces that were described as having been created by the artist, but that weren't photographed. And so like the the original artwork and images of it were just lost to history. 
And then based on what he knew of that artist, he would work from his imagination and paint in the style of that artist. You know, for someone that committed fraud, he really did his due diligence. And like, as I think about when I want to study artists, like that's what I would love to do. I wouldn't want to commit fraud, of course, but like live their lives. I would not want to eat Salvador Dali's food. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and his weird doubled eggs. And that's the first thing I thought about is I hope he never had to do a dolly and do that. Um, but I think, not that I'm supporting fraud, but I think that is a really wonderful way to study an artist that you admire. Well, in a lot of ways, that's the traditional way we learned art. Right. We learned art through, you know, like I said, the master study is the traditional method. I mean, people would grow up before art school, people would grow up and they would do apprenticeships in a studio first doing stuff like the grunt work of grinding pigments and making paints. And then they might do like some of the boring bits, the, you know, the washes in the background for a painting. And then they'd work their way up to get to do some of the detail work in the artist's studio before they're making their own stuff. And that's that's how they learned the craft. And you learned it by studying the ins and outs of every step of somebody's process. And Beltraki was in some ways doing something extremely traditional, just with a slightly different spin. As, you know, he, he was putting... You know, he was sort of like a secondhand apprentice or something. You know, he was working almost Uh, like he was in their studio, you know, right? just not given permission to do so. Um, Small detail. (laughs) Small detail. But it feels in some ways like it is perfect for a postmodern art discussion about authorship and what we value in art and all of that, which I think we'll probably get to as this episode goes on. Mm hmm. So, you know, as he's doing these studies, I think he gave um, he his explanation for it was he said that and I'm quoting here. Ernst was a very typical example. He always painted in series, always in a specific way. In one series, for example, he painted crowds and in the next forests. So what was missing was a painting featuring crowds and forests together at the transitional picture, you might say. And that's the picture I painted, end quote. So what he would do is he'd look for gaps in that artist's catalog, and then he'd kind of fill in the gaps with his own work. Now, a lot of people would say like, well, you know, provenance is such a big part of the art history, art, the history of the work and everything like that. And so to authenticate the works, this is another one of those like he really he went big on this to authenticate the works. He would produce photographs. And so he would go to flea markets, buy old cameras, old film and like photographic papers and largers, everything authentic to the age of the photo that he was trying to fake. And then he would take a picture of his painting in what appeared to be a group a group show. So like the key was he was produce it's historical fiction, you know. Um I found an example where he would research and find a still life exhibition that actually happened in 1924. So he gets uh, cameras, film, papers, everything that would have been on the market in 1924. And 
you know, because this show was not actually photographed, although there is other documentation to show that it happened, he then sets it up to look like his painting was in that show. Like, that's brilliant. And then to top it all off, he forges a note from, like, the gallery's former owner to a collector that was known to have purchased artworks from that gallery. And, you know, because that gallery owner is no longer alive, he can't call BS on it. It was so beautifully executed that the um, the former gallery owner's son actually said he recognized his father's signature and vouched for its authenticity. I just, like, I, my mind is blown by the amount of research and time that he had to put into creating these pieces. And especially for the younger listeners, this was before internet. So him finding this information was not as easy for how we have access to information today. Yeah, like I said, he would literally travel to different countries, seeing the sites, going to the places that that artist was known to go to. And he would dig through the archives and he would he would go, you know, look at letters and other primary sources to know who that artist was talking to and then look at their communications and all of these people who kind of had second and third hand knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the key. He didn't go to like... He didn't forge a letter from, like, the big name. He didn't forge a letter from Pablo Picasso. Mm -hmm. He forged a letter from, like, a gallery owner to another, like, not a big name collector. You know what I'm saying? Right. It makes it, it, it seems like it's probably more likely to be a genuine thing that would have slipped unnoticed by people. Well, and it kind of bypasses the traditional authentication process where authenticators have knowledge of the artist completely, but they don't necessarily have knowledge of the gallery owners. <laughs> well, and, and they, they have a lot of knowledge of all of that stuff, but nobody can know everything about all of that stuff. And if you paint something that looks like it's from that time and you have photographic evidence, mm-hmm. quote, I use in giant air quotes there with the evidence, but you know, Photographs that support your claim and the photographs are on paper from that time period. You just your your first conclusion is not, wow, somebody went really far with this fake. You Mm -hmm. know, like your first thought is like everything seems to fit. Right. Um, And he's not making extraordinary claims. Like I said, he wasn't he wasn't forging work by the biggest artists of the day. Um, Like we'll get to this in a little bit. But one of the one of the pieces that really tripped him up was a painting that he claimed was by um, uh, Heinrich Kampendonk, which, you know, not not exactly a household name. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot that's interesting there. The process reminds me of like a method actor just like getting into that character. And Wolfgang is said to be like really high in empathy. And he would identify with the artist as he was creating, as I already talked about. Um, He didn't just read the biographies. He tried to see the world through their eyes. 
visiting different places that the artist went to. And I thought this was also interesting. It was apparently a bit of a family business because his wife, Helene, um, she would help in staging these photographs. So like she came from a sort of upper class background. And so part of what they did was they tried to claim that her, I think it was grandfather, had taken some of these works from art dealers who were being persecuted by the Nazis. And so that's how it came into their family possession. And then, you know, that's why there's not a lot of records and documentation because, as we know, World War II, a lot of art got lost. A lot of things were being shuffled around. Things were plundered from museums and people's collections. There's a whole lot of awful in that time period. And there were some things that presumably, very realistically, could have been lost in the shuffle, could have been, you know, mm-hmm. taken uh, taken either, you know, through through bad means or what they claimed was like they're trying to help these people get the stuff out of the eyes of the Nazis, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so she would dress up in period costumes and like they would then take pictures to make it look like, oh, it was in her grandparents' collection right there. You can see her grandmother, you know, with that picture in the background. And so again, Gosh. it's all coming together to create this this illusion that is totally plausible. Like yes. it fits with our known history. And that's what good historical fiction is. Good historical fiction takes those elements of known history and just expands on them, fills in some gaps to create a narrative because we all connect to that that narrative and that story. At least I like to think so because that's the entire premise of this podcast. <laughs> but obviously, if we're talking about him and his great fraud – it all had to come crumbling down. And the way, for. <laughs> the way the way that he got tripped up, I, you know, there are a couple things that tripped him up. You know, for one, people get a little a little suspicious when, you know, you're just like, yeah, I keep finding these unknown masterpieces. You know, right. um, there's also uh, some of the like title cards and stuff that he had from like gallery like again giant air quotes the title cards from galleries and collectors and stuff like there there was one where it had like a little almost like caricature on there and people were like the guy who the guy who did this was a very serious collector he wouldn't have put such a silly image on his cards you know mm-hmm. but that alone wouldn't be enough proof with someone saying like, eh, I don't know if this fits the personality of this guy who died decades ago. What really tripped him up was a little bit of titanium white. Now, throughout oh. history, there have been different pigments people have used. Um, titanium white is a relatively new one. So Beltraki typically, like I said, he did his homework and he would typically use things that were appropriate to the time period. He would mix up his own paints and everything like that, like make his own paints from the raw material, the pigments and everything, mix it with the oil. He knew the process, too. Yeah, ab- absolutely. He knew, every, he knew every step of it up and down. Well, 
apparently he's working on um, trying to create a painting um, that he would later sell, saying it was the work of Heinrich Kampenach. Um Kampenach was a painter that was part of the Blue Rider group, like 1912. Um, he was in with like Franz Marc, Kandinsky, all of them. So he's among the modernists ridiculed by the Nazis. Like he, his work was in the degenerate art show and he fled Germany for the Netherlands. Obviously it makes sense that some of his works would go missing and gaps in the provenance. Perfect subject for Beltraki. So anyways, Beltraki's working on a Kampenach painting and he runs it out of zinc white, which is the white that Kampenach would have been using. Rather than mix up some more, he just goes out and buys some. Unfortunately, unbeknownst to him, and he, I've read interviews where he's like cursing the manufacturer. Um, he says like, it was not labeled. It was not disclosed on the label. There was some titanium in the manufactured white. Oh and my goodness. I know. And that was not around at that time. So as people were, you know, a little bit suspicious, they do some analysis and it's like, you can't deny the fraud when you've got this anachronism. You've got this component that was not of the time. Hmm. Now, after the break, um, I wanted to do things just a little bit differently. This week, I want to look at two paintings, one by Beltraki and one by Kampendank. We'll look at them, and I'm just curious to see if you can tell who made which. Oh, boy. I hope I'm going to write. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. Looking at these two paintings, I'm just going to call the one on the top painting A and the one on the bottom painting B. You, you see them in the, the notes? Yeah. Um, let's start just looking at painting A. What, what are you seeing? What's jumping out at you? Um, I see some horses right in the middle. Um, 
were donkeys, houses along the back, trees, um, kind of in a cubist style. Um, lots of bright colors, thin outlines, if any, um, and lots of contrast between the colors. Yeah, they are really saturated. Um, this is one that I I would really like. I mean, this is because a lot of cubism kind of um, I don't I don't want to say it bored me, but I I don't know of a better way of describing it. Like the the sort of monochromatic neutral that Picasso was doing. I, I've always liked color. I I color. like the way this yeah. is fragmented and it's so saturated. And we have these combinations. Like we see warm next to cool to create that contrast so frequently. We've got like three horses in the foreground. I can see a house and some trees and other elements of a landscape, but it's all fragmented and the colors are just so intense. I really like that. And there's a really strong repetition of these different shapes around the composition. Like I said, there are three horses. There's more than one house. Like I see almost a house on the left and a house on the right. There's a good balance there. We see these repetition of arcs and other sort of similar geometric shapes that are fragmenting the space. Um, even like the tree shapes, I see tree shapes distributed, um, sort of like left, right and center. So there's a good, like I say, balance to the piece. I also um, see also mountains in the front. That's what they, that blue one right beneath the largest horse. That yeah. One, but it doesn't make sense. Like within the space that a mountain would be there. See, I was reading that more watery. Oh, I was reading that more like like, you know, horses coming to drink mm-hmm. um, and especially with that like little organic blue shape towards right. the towards the right that it, it feels to me. Um, I could you know, I could be wrong, but I, I see it almost like a flow like uh, there's that big um, it's like a deciduous tree without any leaves near the center going to to the top edge of the of the picture and just to the left of that where the branch would be in shadow we see a vertical blue band that to me reads almost like a waterfall and then there are these little bits of blue winding around from the base of that through the landscape towards the bottom that i just read as like water flowing across like a river Interesting. Right beneath that red tree, I read that figure as another animal. It's there's I could I see that. I don't yeah. know what animal. But <laughs> well, it, it it feels a little bit like a it feels a little bit like a horse turned towards its back because like um okay, so we've got we've got that that tree branch that like points right in towards what i see as a lighter blue streak that would be like right down the horse's nose or snout or whatever and then the arc of i guess a horse's cheek where its head connects to its body and then it's like it's turning looking back at its own butt cuz horses love to do that kind of thing is how i see it um but then i see those other blue shapes surrounding it as like I say, I read them as watery shapes. And of course, that's the beauty of abstraction. You can interpret it in different ways, but that's how I saw it. 
Now, if we look at painting B, the one underneath that, what do you what do you see in there? What's jumping out at you? This one is darker. Um, there's a lot more black used. Um, it's a thicker outline around the object, still cubist in nature, still vibrant colors. Um, there are people in this one waving hands around. Um, it doesn't give the same look of houses as much that are easy mm -hmm. enough to read compared to the first one. There in the bottom half of the painting, there are horse animals. <laughs> say animals, yeah. I'm not sure. Maybe a cow is the red one. Um, and there's also one more I read on the top right half. But I don't know, maybe it's just this season, but I'm reading this as like almost spookier too because of the colors and the blending of the colors. It seems like it's at night in my mind because of the dark trees and the different darker hues in the sky area. Um, there are a few flowers towards the front, um, but I don't know a story that's happening within this yet. Yeah. And this one to me, it feels, it feels almost like uh, there's like this, heaviness at the base of it it feels like it's stacked but also almost like a pyramid type of composition where all the visual weight is carried almost down the up the middle you know what i'm saying um mm -hmm. it feels like the animals are like on top of each other and the 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 human figures are rising up out of that and and there's a strong emphasis down the middle because we have those mostly yellow and orangish shapes going down the middle. And then towards the left edge, it gets very neutral. There's a lot of a lot more black, white, and gray. And so it's more saturated in the middle, which I feel like gives it that a little bit more visual weight. And maybe that's partially because my own biases and what I like and what appeals to me in art, but it feels like it gets desaturated towards the left edge. And then the fact oh, that, Oh no, go ahead. What behind the man in the suit, the green figure, do you read that as another man? And if so, the green or, figure, I, I, I read that as a representation of a person. Okay. Who that person is, what they're doing, I don't know. Kind of looks um, like a paintbrush as a man. <laughs> I, I'm going to be honest. It, it feels to me like it's Slender Man or something out of yeah, like creepypasta. It, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it feels like it feels like this would be an old work predating the internet that someone might point to to be like, ah, these mythical creatures, the boogeyman has been <laughs> lurking all along. Um, but... You're right. There's much more darkness to this. There's much more heaviness to it. I feel like a lot of things are more defined, more outlined, um, including like the features on the figures. Um, there's a yeah, there's a little bit thicker, although a lot of the application of the paint does feel very similar, like the way that the colors are blended feels very similar 
for the I most part. I don't know if I agree with that. Because I'm looking at the bottom of the first one and it looks like they aren't fully blended. At the top, I could see that. So I'm looking more at the top. I see what you're saying. The, on the one in the like painting a the top one with the three horses mm-hmm. the bottom part of that feels to me like you know how there were some phases where they got a little bit looser and less blended it okay. feels you know um i think kandinsky is almost a good example or a comparison here where like some of his work we saw the brush strokes a little bit more distinct and sometimes it was a little bit more blended. Um, when I'm looking at the one on the, on the bottom, you know, painting B, there's a little bit more blending. It yeah. just seems more thorough and like, it's I more consistent in the way consistent. the paint is applied. That's the word I'm looking for. Yes. I would I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I see some differences in style, some stylistic shifts in painting A, some like idiosyncratic, like I'm not sure which way I want to go with the paint on this because the top half of it feels more blended, mm-hmm. um, more subtly blended, I guess. Even that's not all that subtle though, but there is a difference in the degree of it. I guess I would say, mm-hmm. um, whereas it, it is more, it does feel a little bit more consistent on the, the bottom one. So now the question is between these two, which do you think is the Beltraki? I, I wish I could Google <laughs> the other artists just to like see, but then I would know the answer. Um, I, I'm going to say that painting A is. Is the Beltraki? Yeah. And you are correct. <laughs> Not only is that the the actual Beltraki painting, that is the one that got him caught. Okay, because I was looking at the whites. <laughs> I was like remembering <laughs> back from my painting courses in art school and the, how we had to buy both of them and they had different qualities. So that one just looked a little too clean of a white. You're good. I got to say, hats off. This is why I keep bringing you back because you're good. Your powers of observation. That was nerve wracking. Fantastic. (laughs) I think you should bring back some other art teachers and have them guess too. I I will, but like I think I think not as many are as brave as you to be put on the spot with this one. Um, but I I do want to just to wrap this up as I as I usually do. Um, so that painting, um, the three horse, the three red horses, Beltraki painted it. That's the one he got caught with. He did a little time in prison. And then um, since then, he has done some work. He continues to do work in his own name now, signing his own name. And it is interesting. He does kind of like reimagine famous works in different styles and mashups of different styles. Um, I'm going to be honest. It's it's not necessarily my favorite, but I do love somebody who, who is um, making 
Salvador Mundi like 10 different ways and trying to to see if they can salvage a decent composition out of that ugly, ugly, quite possibly fake Leonardo painting. (laughs) Um, But what do you think of... We'll go with the three horses. Where does this one belong? Is this a piece for the Louvre? Is this one for the lab or is this one for the Lou? Um, I would say the lab. And I think when I'm thinking about artists to study, it may not be their achievements or negative choices, but like their process. And I do think Beltraki was a very talented artist with how he could replicate and I'm glad that he is now making under his own name but I'm also thinking about how artists today do parodies and um we accept that in the art world so I would definitely not put this in the bin but I also don't think it it has the same prestige as a completely original art piece See, I actually I actually kind of disagree on some level because I think if we said that this was a museum piece under Compendonk's name, why shouldn't it be under Beltraki's? You know what I'm saying? Like yeah, the fact that, that it the fact that it loses prestige because of the name attached to it really to me raises interesting questions about what we value in art and art history mm-hmm. and you know this is an authentic Beltraki because he wasn't making a copy of Compendonk's painting he said this is the style that Compendonk was painting in this is the kind of composition he might have made but he created every every line shape all the the brush strokes in there he was not copying someone else's and in some ways i feel like that's a almost a more interesting commentary than the things that like warhol was doing right you know i mean it's it's along the same lines but there's something about compendonks or not compendonks <laughs> Beltrock. man Look at me. I'm like, I can't get the name right. Um, there's something about Beltraki's work that I find really interesting because in some ways it's more art- artisanal and more authentically creative than what we hold up as works by various artists. Because you and I both know that all sorts of artists throughout history have utilized studio assistants and um, even have had like ghost painters working under them who have created works for them, executing th- that work. Whereas he studied meticulously and and genuinely created his own work from his own vision based on his understanding of the art history, um, which I find really interesting. It's a different sort of a master study. He's not studying someone else to learn exactly how they painted that work and then copy it. He's studying to learn what were the ideas and the approaches and then copy those I- the ideas and approaches, which really is what all artists are doing. The only difference is he didn't sign his own name. Yeah. And I guess I think a lot about 
names sadly are important in the art world. And I don't think they should be as important, but I want to know why he didn't find it, why he couldn't sign his name originally, you know? I So I think... I think it was just like this was what he was interested in doing. And I I think the way he like really got started down this path of like fraud was early on he was like upcycling old paintings that he bought at like flea markets and stuff. Like he would paint over it a little bit, add some cute decorative stuff to make it more saleable, and then he would sell it for a profit. And then I think he just kind of fell into it and realized, like, hey, there's a lot of money to be had. And when I say a lot of money, like, he was a multi, multi-millionaire, traveling the world, very successful in his fraud. But I think for me, the the only the thing that really bothers me is that he didn't sign other people's names and then reveal this as like, well, this is my performance to call out that shallowness of the art world. Right. It was like, he just got caught in his fraud. And, yeah. um, you know, there's, it, it's like so, cl- yeah, it's so close to an emperor's new clothes kind of situation, mm-hmm. except for the fact that like, uh, he he messed up and he was he was really just running a scam on them to make money and and be very successful um although he has also said that like he only he only sold to a certain number of dealers and everything like that like he didn't sell directly to individual buyers he sold to dealers and he told all of his dealers after he got caught he's like yeah all of this stuff was a fraud if you want to send it back i will take the paintings back and not one painting has been returned. Oh. I I have read statistics. I've read different amounts, but I have read that somewhere as high as quite possibly 40% of the art in museums is inauthentic. Yes. yes. It's it's a staggeringly high amount and there are all sorts of incentives to not expose the pieces that are um questionable in terms of their provenance but that's a that's like a whole other topic but i do feel like i i feel like this is a piece that should be in a museum as just a way of bringing attention to that fact and also you gotta respect someone who does does their work really well even when like he's doing the wrong thing clearly you know but he's doing it really well and and i gotta grudgingly give some respect to that you know yeah so for me it's a museum piece to call out the museums and also just because the art of fraud was really well executed on a level that i couldn't pull off no not certainly not me either but thank you so much for coming on taking the time once again i really appreciate it as always thank you 
This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.